Welcome to episode 122 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow uh, analyst Anshul Sack. Let's get started with my first topic. Uh, both you and I spent time with 5G Americas in Dallas this week at their analyst event. And so I thought I would start off and uh, share some insights and would love you to do the same when I'm done. But at a high level, um, I thought it was a great event. Um, first time that it's uh, come back to in-person in a few years post-pandemic. Uh, Neville Ray is now the chairman of the board and they, they cycle through different um, operators uh, because they have to be sort of the Switzerland. <laughs> and we'll talk more about, uh, about that in a minute here. But yeah, Neville kicked it off, uh, shared his insights um, around the growth of 5G, um, did a good job of not, um, you know, beating, beating his chest. He likes to do that with T-Mobile, um, but, uh, but it's all good. So that was great. And then I love the format. The second day uh, were a series of roundtables. And, uh, and also the general counsel for the FCC uh, kicked it off on the second day. Uh, doing a fireside chat with Chris Pearson, who's the president of 5G Americas. I, I really found that that, um, that fireside chat was very insightful um, to hear from the general counsel and kind of get uh, a behind the scenes look at what they're considering. And one of the big takeaways for me uh, was just what they're doing to uh, do better synchronization and coordination across uh, different government entities. Uh, with respect to uh, ensuring um, planning for future spectrum. I mean, I think one of the, the challenges and one of the reasons why the U.S. is behind other parts of the world with mid-band spectrum is that it was almost uh, an afterthought. You know, there was a lot of waiting, and then all of a sudden um, the auctions uh, began. And certainly the U.S. is in a pretty good position, but I think other parts of the world were, were much further ahead there. But so I thought that was interesting. And then there were a number of breakouts, uh, roundtables. Um, the, the big highlight for me, um, I attended the, uh, the telecom policy and regulation breakout. Um, I was the only analyst in that breakout. So I uh, got to spend a lot of time with Samsung, uh, Qualcomm, um, as well as uh, Ericsson. And so it was a great discussion. We talked a lot about policy and uh, how it all relates to the digital divide. And so um, again, really, really insightful couple of days, but would love to get your, your insights on what you found uh, interesting. Yeah, I also attended as you did. And I think we both did a pretty good job of uh, not uh, replicating uh, our, our, uh, our, our presence in those round tables. Right. Although I think you did enjoy uh, joining me for the last NTN one. Yeah. Uh, I think the NTN one was actually very interesting. Yeah, um, right. Probably the most interesting session because there were a lot of very knowledgeable people there that, that gave some very interesting insights. Um, I do have a recording of those conversations. So uh, if anyone would like to hear what happened or what was talked about, feel free to reach out to me. I, I can uh, share those. Texas is a one-party state. Um, and <laughs> I, I, think, um, I think that it was just really like a good thing to see everybody and to talk to everyone. 5G Americas is definitely one of the best groups out there for connecting you, you know, all of the Americas um, and all of the operators in a way that I think is more kind of directly connected to the analysts, right? Because the whole point of 5G Americas is mostly to be an advocacy organization, 
Mm -hmm. um, but the summit itself is very much a analyst focused summit. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a lot of really good people that go there from pretty much every company. Um, yeah. And I think that's what's really great is not just the operators. It's it's also, you know, the the Ericsson's, the Nokia's, the Qualcomm's, yeah. the Samsung's, the Intel's of the world. Um, and I think it's a really good summit. I think there definitely could be more that could be done um, to make it interesting. Um, specifically, you know, more one-on-ones. I think those would be great. But those kind of happen organically. Sure. Um, and I, I just think that... Um, you know, unfortunately, I was delayed, so I missed Neville's talk. There's there's a really good, healthy conversation going on. You know, I personally think Verizon should be there, but they never have been. Right. Uh, apparently, they were Im involved early on, but they haven't been since. And I think it's a mistake on their part because, you know, they don't really get to participate in these conversations as a result of their, their lack of involvement. Um, and I also think, you know, they were a big motivator of stuff like CTIA, um, mm -hmm. as was AT&T. But um, maybe it's because, you know, 5G Americas was more CDM, more GSM focused. Maybe mm -hmm. that could be why. Um, but I just think it's a mistake for Verizon to sit out. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it. And you know, I'm glad I went, even though it was a very short period of time. Um, and, yeah, it was good to see everybody and, and participate in a lot of talks. There were some metaverse conversations. Um, unfortunately, I tend to dominate those. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because of my my background right. but um no i i think it's really good and you know the cool thing is there's a lot of people who are involved in like the standards the standards setting right. and uh you know having those kinds of deep knowledge experts involved is, is always a good thing i agree i'm glad you mentioned you know the representation crosses operators and infrastructure providers uh one of our biggest fans of the gt on 5g peter lender was there from ericsson it was great to see him connect with, with him. He's also a fellow road biker like I am. Uh, just a great guy. He's he's out at Coda. And, um, and I, I just got to throw this out there because the Formula One is in Austin this weekend. I, I've been critical um, in the past, last year when I attended with the cellular coverage, and I actually reached out to Coda. I have a friend that actually knows Bobby Epstein who, um, who runs that and didn't get a reply back. And um, let's just say Peter did a speed test out there that was less than, than impressive. And I did share that on social media. So if you want to catch that, you can, but, um, I'll make sure yeah. to retweet it from the, uh, the, uh, G2 account so people can see it. Yeah. Right. So we'll, yeah, we'll re we'll retweet that, but, uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to bemoan that, but let's move to your first topic this week. And you actually do want to talk about Verizon. I did catch this news, um, they, they posted some pretty impressive numbers with their FWA service, and you want to share some insights there. Yeah, so they actually had some kind of, I would say, mixed results. Um, the mixed results being, one, that they did report that they've now passed a million uh, fixed wireless subscribers, mm -hmm. but they also are continuing to have uh, subscriber losses, even in spite of these, um, uh, these fixed wireless gains. So... Their right. stock is down big time. Um, they are down 29% this year. And they are at their lowest stock price since 2011. So over a decade. Wow. Um, so, so, you know, I really think that a lot of this has to do with Verizon's overly aggressive marketing of 5G. Um, and I think their overly aggressive uh, marketing of millimeter wave. Um, right. You know, I can't necessarily fault Verizon for having to go millimeter wave. 
because there was no spectrum available to them. That's what they had. Yeah. Right. I I completely understand that they, you know, they had to do make do with what what they had, but the reality was they were marketing millimeter wave as if it was going to be available everywhere and enable experiences all the time. But what they were delivering was DSS. And it was so bad that people were literally turning off 5g to get a better experience. And that's actually the predominant um, perception of 5G for a lot of Verizon customers. And then what ended up happening is a lot of Verizon customers saw people on T-Mobile going, hey, my stuff's going gangbusters. I'm getting five, 600 megabits per second in my living room and you can't get, you know, 100 megabits outside. So, you know, this this massive difference in experience and and, and, uh, I think overall user satisfaction has really hurt Verizon. And it isn't something that, you know, I think happened over a year. I think this was a one, two, three year horizon thing where people just got fed up over time. You know, yeah. they didn't really, they didn't really see the the fruits of their efforts until this year, I think, um, because, you know, people take time to, to switch mobile carriers. They don't, you know, they don't get fed up over a week. They usually yeah. get fed up over months or years. And I think this is a consequence of that. And I think uh, Verizon's network is going to get a lot better. It is already getting a lot better. Right. But I think next year you're going to probably see Verizon turn things around. Um, and I think that they're going to have a much better network to that next year. And I think they're going to start to, um, you know, potentially bring back customers. Um, I think the biggest challenge, and I think I mentioned this in, in the details for this post, um, prices went up as well. And, you know, it's really hard to uh, steal away customers when you increase your prices. No, I agree. I think you nailed it. It's uh, it was their marketing a millimeter wave, their ultra wideband service. And um, as you know, most in the industry know, millimeter wave provides great performance, but it's got it has very very poor propagation, and so you're only going to find that in you know major metropolitan areas. And you know they're launching their FWA service, um, and they're still building out their their midband network. And so. Um, I suspect some of the churn is related to the poor performance. We've talked about that on prior podcasts. You know, they have a very aggressive price on their FWA service uh, with a bundle with their mobile service, but it's but it's pretty poor. So I agree with you. And it's interesting. I'm going to talk about AT&T as my third topic in earnings, and it's sort of a tale of two cities or a tale of two coins there. But let's move to my second topic this week. And I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about Verizon as well. So I hope Verizon doesn't get um, you know too upset that we're we're thumping on them a little bit. But um, our friend Mike Dano at Light Reading uh, posted an article recently around Boeing. So Boeing's a huge company. They have over 140,000 employees. They're number 65 on uh, Fortune's list of world's biggest companies. And so they use AT and T as their primary uh, mobile provider. But Verizon was their secondary mobile provider. Well, they've made a decision to move away from Verizon and roll with T-Mobile. And so, you know, this this got me thinking, you know, what really drove that decision? Um, You know, we were just talking about Verizon, I think some missed expectations with their 5G deployment. And I think certainly this is it. Um, I think there's another factor here, though, too. Um, and, you know, you and I are working on a Forbes article. We attended the, uh, the T-Mobile Analyst Summit uh, about a week ago in Bellevue. We're a little behind on that article, but we're going to try to get it posted next week. But um, T-Mobile for Business is really making a, a, a huge run. And uh, 
they've got a lot of you know big logos. So um, Alaska Airlines is probably one of their most prominent um, high-profile enterprise customers, uh, but they also um, uh, have General Mills and AutoZone as well as customers. So you know I think th this was probably a decision on Boeing's part, looking at the trajectory of where um, the big three are at with their 5G deployment, looking at um, the capabilities with T-Mobile's uh, fixed wireless access service and the speed and performance of it as well. And um, so I think at the, uh, at the end of the day, the decision was made based on some of Verizon's missteps and where T-Mobile is really sort of pulling themselves up you know, by the bootstrap with respect to the enterprise. But I'd love to get your insight. The thing that we've noticed is that T-Mobile is definitely making a lot of movement on their business side. Um, I think this is just a ex good example of them executing on their strategy. Um, I also think that helps Boeing as a local company. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't, be I wouldn't be surprised to see if, you know, T-Mobile moves up to their number one carrier of choice over time. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, uh, there's something about Washington companies. They, they, they just like working with each other. Um, and I think that they're going to continue to, you know, move up the chain. You know, T-Mobile wasn't really considered a business company for a very long time. So this not, is going to be- Not even two years ago. Yeah, not yeah. even two years ago. So. so I think this is just something that's going to, you know, it's going to change the, the dynamic of competition um, because now a lot of businesses are going to have three choices and they, they previously only had a binary choice. So when yeah. you add that third opportunity or that third choice, um, I think it promotes a lot more competition, which I think is the whole point of the T-Mobile Sprint merger. So yeah. I think this is going to be, you know, making a lot of um, changes within within the industry. And, you know, T-Mobile's fixed wireless business is very focused on offering a, a third option or even a second option in some cases for small businesses and even medium-sized businesses yeah. to have fixed wireless uh, nationwide, right? They're, they're literally the only ones that can offer fixed wireless service nationwide Good so point. yeah um, i think this is just one of those things where boeing's big enough where they're looking at somebody like a t-mobile and saying hey you know what like this is an absolute right fit for us as a backup and uh, i apologize for the sirens i live next to a fire station but um <laughs> I, I think um there's just a you know t-mobile is, is the right fit and we're really seeing things change considerably for them now yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Competition is a great thing. You know, I didn't initially connect the dots on the fact that, you know, both T-Mobile and Boeing are in the Seattle area as well. So that might be, you know, that might have been sort of the icing on the cake there. But um, great insight, my friend. Let's move to your second topic. And you want to talk about Starlink and um, the possibility of them branching out into the aviation sector, right? Yeah, so this is something that um, I think was announced this week. Um, I saw this from Peter Cohen over at uh, RCR. Um, basically what it is, it's a satellite broadband service that promises up to, up to 350 megabits per second with no caps for 25K a month, um, in addition to $150,000 in equipment costs, which is not outrageous for aviation um, internet equipment. Right. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, Starlink used to be a fixed wireless service only um, and then got the ability to serve uh, RVs and boats, I think. And now we're looking at them being able to serve planes. Um, and, and what's interesting about this is, you know, it introduces more competition into the, um, into the space, right? Yeah. Um, 
And I think it's going to improve connectivity, hopefully, and improve scale. Because one of the biggest problems that I find um, satellite companies have is just getting enough scale to be able to be profitable. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've watched so many, so many different satellite services go down. Yeah. Go bankrupt one, web. Getting, yeah. You know, one web is not alone, right? Like I think GlobalSAR went bankrupt at one point. Um, almost every, I think even Iridium was close to bankruptcy if they weren't already bankrupt. So everybody's had these things happen and, you know, satellite business is not, you know, perfect, but it seems like SpaceX is doing a pretty good job. And I'm actually wearing my uh, SpaceX shirt today, which is not on purpose. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just think that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in, in the, the fixed wireless space, which is becoming less fixed. And then, you know, the wireless space is becoming more fixed. So it's really interesting to see. I think this is also interesting because this could also potentially be an opportunity for 5G in planes. If, yeah. if there was some kind of NTN, you know, connectivity. Right now, it looks like SpaceX is doing a proprietary kind of uh, communication thing that they're doing with their existing network. Yeah. Um, and then there's some, you know, talk about how Starlink is being used in Ukraine and shutting it off and turning it on and all the, the craziness around Elon himself. But yeah. overall, I think this is a really interesting service because um, there's more and more demand for internet connectivity, connectivity up in the air. Yeah, you know, um, satellite is getting really hot right now. I mean, we've been talking about it on prior podcasts, you know, NTN, non-terrestrial networking. Um, one of the challenges you pointed it out is uh, it's sort of, it's the Wild West right now, and there's a lack of standardization. And I'll actually mention that one of the points that the FCC General Counsel, and I'm forgetting his name, we'll, we'll be sure to include it when we post the podcast, um, because he was a very compelling um, speaker, but he sort of spoke to that and said um, they, you know, they view, you know, satellite as the new frontier. It's changed quite a bit, you know, going from geo to Leo and, you know, more birds in the air. And, and so they're having to sort of, you know, revisit policy and regulation there, but they see it as a very innovative element. And it's, you know, and when I spent time recently with John Stanky at AT&T, we talked about satellite as well. And, and he views that as an element um, that's going to be a part of how they accomplish, um, you know, uh, bridging the digital divide with with not only you know uh, fiber, but with fixed wireless access services as well. So it's uh, the space race is uh, is heating up, and it's going to be exciting to kind of watch and see what unfolds there. But let's move to my third and final topic this week. So I want to talk about AT and T. So they announced three Q earnings. And um, they were quite strong. So, I mean, I'll, just, I'll hit some of the highlights and then provide, you know, kind of two key insights here. So um, from a subscriber growth perspective, over 700,000 postpaid phone net ads, um, 338,000 AT&T fiber net ads, which that is the second best quarter ever for the company. And uh, that marks 11 straight quarters with more than 200,000 net fiber ads. So, their fiber business is on fire. I wrote a Forbes article after I spent time with John in Evansville and um, absolutely, you know, fiber first is, is AT&T strategy. It's driving tremendous ARPU uh, in their home broadband business. Uh, it's also providing critical backhaul for, uh, for their fiber, uh, for their 5G mobile uh, build out as well. So, but at, a, but at a high level, what I like about this is uh, two things, one, I mentioned 
I mentioned the fiber growth and how that's supporting a backhaul. But um, secondly, I think which is also really, really important is that they also reported significant momentum in building out their, uh, their mid-band spectrum assets. And um, that, that's, that's mission critical. You know, we were talking about, you know, performance earlier and, you know, Verizon's sort of missteps there and not having um, the proper spectrum uh, to deliver the right 5G uh, experience for its subscribers. And, uh, and AT&T is making significant momentum. Um, not only um, are they deploying C-band, but they're also deploying 110 as well. And um, that's, a, that's been a little bit easier for them and faster for them to, to do that. And I guess as a final note, and then I'll, I'll toss it to you, what's interesting is um, when you look at their mid-band pops and the forecasts um, compared to fiber, uh, basically the fiber sub base is uh, surpassing the non-fiber base. So um, that's pretty significant, but what, what I'd love to get your insights as well. Yeah. So I want to, wanted to talk about the uh, mid-band pump. So they actually yeah. upgraded their forecast for how many customers they expect to cover due to this accelerated, um, you know, deployment roadmap. So yeah. they now say that they expect to have, um, 130 million pops by the end of the year instead of 100 million. And like you said, um, their their fiber uh, sub base is now bigger than their non-fiber base, which is huge. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then they also said that they they now have a live 5G standalone core, which which is also interesting. So in I didn't last, catch that. Wait, I, where did you, you catch that? <laughs> uh, this was on RCR Wireless. Okay. So, Cool. Um, it says Chris Sambar, AT&T EVP of Networking yeah. Strategy, on a call with journalists this morning, which was yesterday, yeah. um, said that uh, he confirmed that AT&T has a live 5G standalone core, which is already carrying traffic for com commercial customers, which I find very interesting as a statement, considering that Verizon made a similar statement last week. Right. Um, so as I had, as we had both predicted. Uh, AT and T and Verizon are going to start talking about mid uh, about standalone, um, and like that, we now have standalone at all three carriers. Yeah, um, but or at least they're publicly talking about it now, which is something that we couldn't have said six months ago or even two months ago. Yeah. So I think um, we're going to gear up for a lot of standalone talk next year. I think that's a trend that everybody should be looking to, and standalone means new use cases. Thankfully, yeah. finally. So I'm very excited for what this means because now we can start talking about real use cases and network slicing and my heart is my heart is beating. But <laughs> I also wanted to add that I just think AT&T is kind of on a tear. Um, and I think AT&T's growth um, is really a component of their dual mid-band rollout. Yeah. And, um, you, know, every, their, you know, their network speeds are up, their... Their, their subs are up, their revenues are up, everything's looking peachy. And all they had to do was stop focusing on content and just focus on the network. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not particularly in love with the way Discovery is handling the Warner merger and the amount of things that they're killing and what they're doing to some TV shows and, and, and movies and things like that. Yeah. But AT&T is focusing on its network and it's showing real dividends. Um, and I think a strong AT&T is a good thing for everybody. Um, and I think next year is going to be extremely interesting between all three carriers having SA, Verizon's network getting better, T-Mobile continuing to chug along, and AT&T getting a lot better. So 
Yeah. I really think next year is going to be really interesting for a lot of reasons. And I think people are going to start getting more excited about 5G because there's going to be a lot more to talk about. I agree. You know, and I've spoken to this point before standalone and locks the true promise of 5G. Um, I've spent time with Chris Sambar. He runs network um, for AT&T now. Scott Mayer retired um, a few months ago. Um, uh, Chris is a very pragmatic guy, uh, very approachable, much like John. And um, he's the right guy for the job. And so, yeah, I don't think it's interesting. I, I didn't catch this. I mean, you and I have been pretty busy um, the last couple of weeks, but but it's interesting to hear that, you know, Chris sort of let that cat out of the bag. And I'm sure it's time to uh, the fact that, you know, Verizon let their 5GSA core cat out of the bag as well. So, yeah, I, I think 2023 is going to be is going to be fun to see. Um, you know, both Verizon and AT&T really, uh, really drive their SA deployments home. But let's move to your third and final topic this week. You want to talk about Nokia and Ericsson, and they're forecasting a 5G slowdown in infrastructure spending. Yeah, so this was kind of a derivative of both Nokia and, Veri and, and Ericsson talking about infrastructure um, and revenues. Um, so Ericsson is really struggling financially right now. Um, they, you know, their share price is down considerably. You mean Nokia, you mean Nokia, not Ericsson, right? Ericsson as well. Okay. Both of them, share prices are down quite a bit. So, okay. Share, share price, not, not yes. overall financials. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that's accurate. For example, uh, you know, Ericsson's share price in January, um, was like 120 SEK, which is the Swedish kroner. Um, and now it's down to 60. So it's literally half where it was yeah. at the beginning of this year. They're they're really struggling in terms of their actual share price. Um, and they're, they were down 16% after their, their publication of their earnings yesterday. So, um, you know, the truth is, is that Ericsson is still a very large company. Um, and, and they're, you know, if you look at their PLs, their net profit dropped seven percent um, to four hundred eighty million dollars. So I think it really looks down to the, the the you know just nitpicking on the financials. I think um, the other thing is really the outlook. Um, Ericsson generates thirty nine percent of its revenue in North America, so it's very heavily exposed to North America, yeah. and it, it was its fastest growing regional market in the, for the third quarter, um, but. The big issue is a lot of the carriers are, are kind of guiding for lower CapEx in 2023, which makes sense when you look at Verizon having an aggressive rollout this year and AT&T both having an aggressive rollout this year. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the rollouts that are considerable in size are happening this year. So financially, things look fairly good this year, even though, you know, Ericsson's struggling, you know, their profits aren't that great for Q3. Um, revenues are still good. Yeah. Um, and the, the real thing is, you know, share price is definitely more of a forward-looking thing, or at least in theories. Uh, I, I'm not the biggest fan of share price and stock market and a, a lot of how, how the theories work because it's supposed to be rational, but it's not rational. Really what it is is that the expectation for both Nokia and Ericsson is that operators are going to be spending less next year on their 5G infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and my thought process here is 
yes, I completely agree with that perception. However, I also believe that there are going to be other countries where there are going to be opportunities for growth, like mm-hmm. India, um, because India is only starting to roll out their 5G network at the end of this year, this quarter, basically, right. um, which means that there's going to be a lot more ramp to happen. And we just talked about Nokia and Ericsson uh, signing deals with, you know, Reliance to, to, yeah. to build out their network. So, you know, a, an interesting climate. I also don't think things are as bad as I think a lot of, you know, financial analysts are looking at, because right. I think there's going to be, you're going to see a drop in us, but you're also going to see a gain in other regions that haven't really built out 5g like the U S has. So yeah. um, they are a little overexposed to the U S market, which is probably the biggest factor here. Um, but there's also some talk about, you know, the Vonage acquisition for Ericsson, right. And yeah. how that costs them $6 billion and whether that really is going to generate, um, real real profits for the company um vonage is profitable but people are skeptical whether or not it will really benefit long term to the ericsson business so i think ericsson you know is a very large company they've got a lot going on now um you know they have lots of interesting business units uh and i think the real the real challenge is going to be for them to integrate all of these new units into a, a single cohesive company that can really start to churn out interesting businesses and opportunities for carriers, I think, uh, to offer new services. I think the real big thing in my mind is how can, you know, Ver- how can Ericsson and Nokia enable the Verizons and the AT&Ts and the T-Mobiles of the world to deliver new use cases? with their infrastructure and potentially services. Yeah. Obviously there's an entire ecosystem of companies doing that as well, but I think the operate the um, you know the infrastructure vendors also need to get involved there to 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 get a piece of that pie. No, I agree and I think standalone will drive some of that. Um, actually it's interesting so I was in Santa Clara earlier this week. I hosted a panel at uh, the Ericsson Imagine Possible event and uh, um, on enterprise and um, you know different emerging use cases and that sort of thing. And afterwards, I had I had spoken with Nicholas uh, Hubeldop, um, who is the Amer- uh, president of um, Ericsson Americas, um, over video. We had uh, our first opportunity to meet in person, and so I think there are two opportunities for Ericsson that they can lean into that um, that Nokia necessarily can't. And so, number one, the private networking opportunity within enterprise. So with Cradle Point. Um, you are going to see some announcements over the next um, several weeks um, that is going to sort of fortify Cradle Point's position to really be aggressive within the enterprise. They've already had a footprint there uh, with private networking solutions, but from my perspective, I've been pre-briefed on this. I can't share it because it's under it's under embargo, but um, I think you're going to see some significant um, additional capabilities come. And so outside of the, the mobile network operator segment, I think um, there's some there's some upside for Ericsson there, and I also had a very frank discussion with him on Vonage and the value of Vonage, you know, based on the price. Because if you think about um, the price that was paid for Ericsson, one billion, that translates to you know pretty pretty measurable value. Six billion with Vonage. Vonage has you know most people remember Vonage is just uh, the VoIP company, but actually Vonage uh, pivoted a few years ago. Nicholas kind of brought me kind of up to speed on this. 
and um, they they serve a lot of underlying infrastructure for IP networks. And specifically, um, he provided an example. Um, if, if you shop with Home Depot, if you shop with Amazon, a lot of those, you know, those text updates on, on shipping and delivery, um, the Vonage platform supports a lot of that activity. So yeah, time will tell. I mean, that was a huge acquisition. Six billion is a, that's a big enchilada to, to digest. But, um, but, I, but I think if you look at the private networking opportunity for Ericsson, and then you also look at leveraging some of the IP that maybe people aren't as familiar with Vonage, you know, bringing to market, I think there's some opportunity there. But, um, but with that, my friend, it's been another great podcast this week. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech, and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune in again next week.